Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we'll be talking about what news organisations can do to win over news audiences that want nothing to do with us. News avoidance is a trend that has had the industry concerned for the last few years. In the last Reuters Institute digital news report, 41% of Britons said they sometimes or often avoided the news, citing mental health, negative news, information overload as some of the top reasons why. A new book, Avoiding the News, Reluctant Audiences for Journalism, shines a light on the people who almost never read the news. I'm speaking today with one of the authors, Benjamin Toff, Assistant Professor at the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication, Director of the Minnesota Journalism Centre, and the former lead of the Reuters Institute's Trust in News Project. He tells us what drives people to avoid the news at all costs, and if there's anything newsrooms can do about it. The short answer is yes, but the long answer is that it will take a lot more than providing more or different kinds of news. That's all coming up, so don't go anywhere. Ben, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to speak to you again, Ben. Um, You've been very busy. You've uh, co-authored a new book called Avoiding the News, Reluctant Audiences for Journalism. Many congratulations on that. Thank you. As far as I'm concerned, Ben, you're one of the you know most relevant authors and researchers into the space of news avoidance in the last few years. You've done a lot of great research over at the Reuters Institute while you were there. Um, so we've spoken a lot about news avoidance in recent years. It still seems to me that a lot of people maybe aren't too sure what this really means. And so I just wonder from the outset, are there any misconceptions about news avoidance that you've hoped to clear up in this book? Is there anything from here that we should really understand before we dig into news avoidance uh, today? Yes, uh, it's a good place to start. I think that um, when we started studying the subject, there were very few people who were looking at it, who had any kind of awareness of what this thing might be. And, and as we worked on the project over time, the level of interest in the subject of news avoidance really exploded, I think partly because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but it's meant that the kind of concept has taken the life, taken on a life of its own. Uh, and so there are a lot of misconceptions about what this term means. Uh, it's often used in different ways to apply to different kinds of phenomenon. So it was definitely on our minds as we wrote the book. Uh, it, we didn't write the book with the intention of clearing up misconceptions, but uh, it became an important part of clarification as part of the writing process and, and knowing how audiences would be receiving it. Um, I think the biggest area that we get a lot of questions about is kind of what is this thing, news avoidance? Because I think the term resonates with a lot of different people, particularly journalists, uh, and a lot of concern about the phenomenon. Um, and it isn't just one thing, and that I think makes it that much more difficult and complicated to make sense of. We define it in a very specific way uh, and make a distinction between what we call consistent news avoidance and selective news avoidance. And both of those terms are really in reference to the ways in which the Reuters Institute has examined this phenomenon. Um, so we started the project in 2016 with a kind of puzzle, which was that we the Reuters Institute does this large survey of news audiences around the world, uh, the digital news report. And for many years, they just excluded people who said they consume news less often than once a month. Uh, what we, this is a group that we've come to define as consistent news avoiders. 
but at the time we knew basically nothing about them. We knew that the, this the percentage wise was relatively small, but fairly high in countries like uh, the US and UK, about um, six or 7% of the public. So, you know, millions of people, but not huge proportion. Uh, in other countries, very few people. Um, at around the same time, the Reuters Institute also started asking people how often you actively avoid the news these days. Uh, that's a much larger set of people. That's what we've come to call selective news avoidance. Um, but that's, I think, one of the key distinctions that we often need to make that, you know, a lot of people feel like they have to actively avoid news. That is related to this. I mean, that is a form of news avoidance for sure. Um, but it's not the only thing that we focus on in the book. And, and I think the more concerning form of news avoidance from our perspective is this more consistent pattern of news avoidance where people are almost excluding all news from their lives altogether. Yeah, and I think it's the selective news avoidance that we all kind of got a little bit hung up on. Uh, I think the stat there in the UK was nearly half of Britons said they selectively um, sometimes or often avoid the news. But really with this book, you're almost pivoting your attention to the people who pretty much always avoid the news or we've got total news avoidance that's very much your your focus in this in this endeavor right that's right and and it's for a couple of reasons i think uh, one was as a strategy for studying this phenomenon mm -hmm. you know we we tried to kind of uh it's the book is really focused on people's relationship with news more generally but we focus on this population of consistent news avoiders as a kind of way of distilling some of the um, kind of most potent features of, the, of that relationship by studying this population of people for whom news is largely absent from their lives. Yeah. Um, but it's not, uh, so, but what we hope to learn from that is, is something that I think does apply more broadly. And, and I think even those of us who consume tons of news, uh, those of us as in my co-authors and I, uh, you know, there's a lot about what we're hearing from this population of people who consistently avoid news that just resonated. It made a lot of sense, yeah. uh, which was a little surprising because we started thinking, started the project really wondering, you know, how could it be possible that people consume almost no news in their lives? Because it feels so inescapable, right? I mean, all you have to do is boot up your social media platform of choice and it feels like there's going to be something, whether, you know, your friend shared something or news notifications going off you know it is a valid question how the hell do you totally avoid the news these days right yeah and that was kind of our starting point we thought you know in a world in which so many of us i think feel inundated by information at all times uh where news is more accessible uh you know more abundant than ever uh how is it possible that people could structure their lives in a way where they're basically never encountering it and uh you know, it's a complicated answer. There's, it's, um, they're just not seeing a lot of it shared. The algorithms on these platforms are not delivering it to them. Um, and the people in their lives are not talking about it much. So they don't feel uh, like they're missing out a whole lot. So the name of the game today is consistent news avoidance, meaning people who consume the news less than once a month. Even if that applies to just a small percentage of the population in a country like the UK, that's still millions. These are people who are happier without the news and don't see their news avoidance as an issue. They're also typically less politically engaged and from lower socio-economic backgrounds. For that reason, news organisations must try harder to reach them, otherwise they're unlikely to become more active civic participants on their own. 
The issue is that it would likely make no difference to a consistent news avoider if you doubled the amount of content you published or increased access to news. The disconnect is often to do with personal reasons and not the news itself. The book authors also spoke to news lovers, people who say they read more than 10 pieces of news a day, to get a sense of what else gets people hooked. And there is one clear difference. News lovers have communities that help them keep up with the news. The, the news lovers were very often embedded in uh, social networks, social communities, where news and talking about news was really central. So it was both kind of reinforcing the practice of following news and the importance of it as kind of civic duty, uh, but also the social benefits that people were getting out of paying attention to news in a way that news avoiders tended to very rarely have those kinds of experiences. So they could imagine maybe like, I guess I would pay attention to news if I could derive some kind of social benefit from it, but they just often weren't. Um, nor were they really paying any kind of social cost because they were not often feeling left out of it uh, when it would come up, or it was just sort of like accepted that uh, it was socially fine to not pay attention to news. So you could, you maybe felt a little odd being out of it, but uh, on balance, that was a good, decent trade-off. Another thing it just, you sort of see immediately, and we, we also could see this in the survey data, the news lovers tended to be older. They tended to be you know, higher socioeconomic status, so wealthier, more highly educated. Um, and they uh, were much more interested in politics, much more engaged politically. They would often um, know, you know their local political leaders. So like we'd ask them, how would you sort of figure out and navigate certain issues? They would, in addition to um, knowing journalists and knowing uh, being very connected to those kinds of political uh, issues and, and um, sort of players in their communities, uh, they could, you know, call up their their neighbor, or their city council person. Like they had that level of connection to politics that, for news avoiders, it was so distant and so disconnected from anything in their lives. They just felt like it also felt irrelevant. Therefore, in a way that um, for news lovers, it, it was really uh, close. So, do news avoiders feel that actually by avoiding the news, there's no real follow through consequence? Therefore, why should I consume with something if life kind of goes on as normal? Yes, I think that's very fair. I think often the news avoiders would say, you know, in addition to all of whatever frustrations or concerns or, or um, uh, challenges they felt associated with paying attention to news, at the end of the day, they felt like, well, what difference does it make ultimately? Like, they themselves personally often did not feel like they could really make any changes politically. Uh, the, the political science term for this is political efficacy. Uh, they just didn't feel like uh, as an individual citizen, there was really much they could do. And so they just felt like, why bother, given how news makes me feel so depressed and uh, had this sort of demobilizing effect, uh, you know, it's not going to make a difference whether I know about this thing happening or not in a way that news lovers often felt the opposite. They just sort of felt instinctively like knowing this information, being informed about it, they felt empowered by it because they, they also felt like they did know how to take, maybe take some steps to, um, to, to affect change. That's really interesting. I mean, because with, with the people who are so tightly integrated within communities, at that point, it's almost routine, right? And it's almost part of their everyday normality. Yeah, and I think that's... Uh, you know, having the, the social ties around news helped to make it 
kind of more immediate and concrete as far as like what steps you would take because mm. ultimately like a lot of the news um you know when you really think about it the, the news avoiders aren't wrong for many of those subjects in the news there isn't really much that an individual can do uh to to respond to and and that's one of these things where i felt like the more we were having these conversations the more i would start to think about our own news behaviors are maybe the weird ones. Like why, how have we convinced ourselves that this uh, <laughs> is actually making us into better citizens because like, we're not actually able to do a whole lot about a lot of these, these issues and problems, but the, the kind of sense of the connections in the world that like the possibility of making connections, I think was easier uh, for those who do consume a lot of news. Um, and so you could sort of construct a, a, a rationale in your mind that that would be able to connect those dots in a way that I think for a lot of the news avoiders, they just felt and they, they would often say like, you know, I really want to just focus on things close to home, mm. things that I can maybe do something about and, and filter out all the rest of it. One of the things I find really fascinating about that is that news avoiders often say they're happier and they, they don't see their own news avoidance as an issue that, you know, life goes on and really they're avoiding maybe a form of stress or a form of, or another something else for them to manage in their potentially already hectic lives. Yes. That was one of the things that we heard um, right from the beginning and, and throughout across the three countries, a lot of people talking about uh, the kind of need to protect their own mental health by um, tuning out the news. And, um, and in surveys, they, they did say that they were sort of less worried about things happening in the world. And, um, they, they, uh, I think we were hearing that reflected in the interviews. People would say, you know, yeah, I live in my own little world or my own little bubble, um, but I kind of need that. And, and a lot of news avoiders would self-describe themselves as very anxious um, and would have this kind of very intense response when they did pay attention to news in a way that news lovers, it's not that they didn't have those feelings as well, but they had kind of strategies for how to navigate it. They had a, they often had a kind of more detached relationship with what they're hearing in the news, um, which allowed them to not be so emotionally impacted by it in a way that news avoiders often didn't feel like they could do anything other than just turn it all off. And I think that's what makes this point really clear is that for, for the group of news avoiders who just feel like the news is kind of too much and there's already too much on their plate and they're really engaging more with the news is, is a bridge sort of too far there. You kind of see the problem where adding more news or adding a different type of news isn't really the answer. You can't just add more plates to someone who already feels like it's too much. News avoiders tend to just want to know the basic facts. They, they were not interested in, uh, a detailed explanation of all these stories. They just wanted to know, like, boil this down into like a 30 second thing so that I can go about my life and maybe just know what I need to know, the basics. And uh, there are, you know, some news organizations that try to really do that well, but often as I think the media environment has kind of increasingly focused around, um, uh, you know, subscription models, uh, uh, kind of reader focused revenue, um, strategies, it tends to be more and more focused around the people who are kind of most interested, most engaged with news, who tend to want that other kind of stuff. And so uh, there there are, I think, this audience is, is just being underserved by the forms of news that, that are kind of most, most likely to proliferate these days. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And I just wonder if we're missing a trick, because if we're talking about people who have that imaginary stack of plates, rather than adding one, can we not remove one? 
if that makes sense. Can we provide a type of news that actually makes their anxieties less and actually therefore increases their engagement? Yeah, and I think that's often the case. People were looking for condensed, easier to follow form of news. It's not that they were listening, they were looking for like a wholesale different version of it altogether. Now, in some cases, like this definitely exists. And I would often hear news avoiders say like they wish there was a form of news in their community that would do X, Y, and Z. And I would I could think of some. But uh, that was also part of the challenge is people are situated in a media environment, which they're inundated by all sorts of different sources of information, sorts of different social media platforms. So it's connecting that audience with these sources that may exist um, is part of the challenge. It's not just enough that they, that, you know, as a news organization, you're putting this information out there, but if people aren't able to uh, find it and connect with it because of everything else that they're seeing, that's, that's part of the uh, obstacle here. There is a fundamental discovery problem with news avoidance. Even if we produce the least anxiety-inducing, the most lightweight type of news possible, they may not even seek us out. One thought is that we may need to reconsider what successful news engagement actually looks like to a news avoider. Maybe it's not clicking on an article and sharing it on social media, but completing a survey, submitting a question, or stopping for a chat in the town centre. The book talked to people who changed their behaviour from news avoider to news reader within six months. The interesting thing is they tended to talk about the power of word of mouth and personal recommendations from friends and family. When people had gotten more interested in news, it was often uh, related to another person in their life that had kind of recommended a certain form of news that kind of worked for their day-to-day life. And to me, that's where there's an opportunity. So I, I think part of it is um, it has to fit the kind of structural constraints of people's lives. And it has to be something kind of reinforced socially. I think there is real potential there, but um, it, it is hard. I think for so many people, um, they've kind of created a, a black and white line between this stuff that they want nothing to do with and, and uh, don't feel like it has much uh, benefit to their lives. And if that's the starting point, it is it is really tough uh, uphill road to travel. Well, let me boil that down into a really concrete question, which is, you know, what can we really expect from people who either don't see their news avoidance or an issue or they're just happier without the news? What can we really expect from these people? I mean, they themselves will say often certain amount of ambivalence about it. I, I think there, there are certainly people who are deliberate about their media use patterns or habits who, you know, felt like they were much happier this way and, and didn't ever foresee changing. But many others would say, you know, this is a point in their life, given the circumstances right now, where they didn't feel like news could fit in, but they didn't necessarily expect to stay that way forever. Um, and some even had previous points in their life where they did engage with news more often, uh, often, you know, people with uh, young kids who um, it, it was partly just that news became difficult to fit into their structures of their lives because of all the other uh, competing, um, you know, challenges that they were trying to navigate. And so I think that if we don't think about news avoidance as like a, a permanent state for people it's as something that uh, people will go through at different points in their life um i think there's a there are ways of meeting people where there are let's treat it more as transitionary then yeah 
And I think many of the news voters themselves, um, they do tend to be younger. And some of them will say, you know, I can imagine when I'm older and I have a different set of concerns day to day that, that I might um, become more interested in news. Uh, and they probably will, although what form of news and to what extent uh, probably will look very different. But you know, towards the end of the book, you make some cautious uh, sort of recommendations for news publishers in terms of where we go from here. Um, besides anything else we've, we've spoken about today, is there anything in those takeaways that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, I mean, one major um, takeaway in that section that we felt we needed to make the case for was, you know, like other industries have faced similar challenges where uh, the public has a really negative perception of what it is that that industry does and, and what they contribute to the world. Uh, other industries that have taken steps collectively to try to respond to that and journalists and news organizations tend to be very, you know, competitive. They, uh, there's not a lot of working together around um, trying to change the public's view about what it is that journalists do. I think typically the, the more frequent approach is to, um, you know, try to let the work speak for itself and to sort of stay above the fray and to try to, and not directly make the case for what is distinct and valuable about, you know, rigorously reported independent journalism. Uh, and I think as a result, a lot of the public doesn't really know what that is, or they have ideas about what it is that is coming from all sorts of different sources. Uh, and so I think one of the things that we argue is needed is uh, kind of more collective effort as an industry to try to make that case and, and make the kind of positive argument for journalism, given the environment that we find ourselves in, where people are just exposed to so many sources of information, much of which is not reliable. And it is hard for people to actually know the difference between something that's been originally reported by a, a professional journalist who actually has the public's interest at, at heart versus everything else. It feels like we, we might have ample opportunities to do that this year. It's obviously a key political year, both in the UK and the US. I mean, what sort of opportunities will there be to enact some of this sort of need for collaboration around some of the key political events on the horizon, you think? There's a lot of the public who just want nothing to do with politics. And a lot of those people are also news avoiders. And, and I think political reporting tends to get so focused on uh the sort of inside uh, strategy and the horse race and the stuff that people who are super interested in politics are most interested in, but ultimately for much of the rest of the public to see as precisely the sort of irrelevant information to their lives that they, they are least interested in. And I think um, that's where this tendency to focus on the kind of most engaged set of readers or listeners or, or viewers uh, sometimes kind of loses sight of that that other divide in the, in, uh, in many countries, which is the larger set of people who are disengaged or disconnected from politics uh, and those who are super involved. And we tend to focus more on the sort of polarized ends of the really involved set of people. Um, and so I think that's one area where in terms of political coverage, there's a lot of the public who are just looking for like a better guide to understanding what's going on. I mean, there's a lot of the news reporters we talked to in the UK who had a hard time placing themselves on the right or left ends of the ideological spectrum who didn't really know, they knew what the parties were, but they didn't really know how they fit into the parties. Uh, and a lot of them would see political content as precisely the sort of just in, 
you know, bickering between politicians who just felt disconnected from anything they actually cared about. And, and they saw journalists as being a, a part of that rather than serving them. Um, and so I, this is an area where I do think that the, like there are real changes in the content of news that I think have a potential to be of more use to um, this segment of the public. On that note, I thank you very much for your time today. Um, congratulations on the book. And um, yeah, it was a real blast to speak to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. If I take one thing from today, it's that consistent news avoidance isn't solely a problem with the news itself. People who never read the news may have had a bad experience with the media, but it's more likely a question of perceived value or personal bandwidth, that keeping up with the news is asking too much or is just not worth the effort. So for the most reclusive of news audiences, reduce barriers for engagement and participation. Prioritise immediate value as much as you can. Friend and family referrals are a great idea. And remember that avoiding the news right now doesn't mean they're avoiding it forever. Keep the door open for their return. I'd love to know what you took from today's conversation and what you're trying out in your newsroom. Find me on LinkedIn, Twitter slash X at JPG Journalism, or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.